You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. And then for our own eyes, we see his devastation and we see his suffering. Job is blindsided. He's unaware, unlike us, of the cosmic wager that was placed upon his life and his obedience to God. And in allowing us to be in both scenes, both earth and in heaven, the author has allowed us a more complete understanding than we would have if we were just limited to one. By having access into the heavens, we come to understand God's governance a little bit more. We've come to learn that the worst of the worst or the best of the best, all of it is under the authority and the power and the love and the splendor of God. Simply put, it means this, there is nothing under heaven, whether a person, a thing, a situation, or suffering that is above or beneath the supremacy and the sufficiency of God in all things. God is able to be worshipped in every event, situation, and amongst every people of the world. He does that, that his greatness and his glory would be known throughout the cosmos. And then we meet this person, Job, who who brings up this cosmic question that we all have. He's blameless in his stature, upright, turns away from evil. He's the embodiment of bad things happening to good people. A question that maybe has found itself into our own thought or out of our own mouths. Why do bad things happen to good people? Job didn't get what he deserved. But in it, he did not curse God. He did not sin. He was still blameless, but yet his suffering continued. And so because of our our access to God's cosmos, we're not left with simple answers to Job's situation. We're left with things that are much deeper and complex to meditate on. We're left to understand that there are things that happen on earth Events that happen in this reality that aren't always clear. Situations and suffering that don't always happen because something is wrong. That sometimes the events and the reasons behind those events happen and their understanding is far beyond our ability to comprehend and understand. Job 1 and 2 doesn't give us a formula to know God's reasonings behind suffering. If that was the case, Job would be a two-chapter book. It's 42 chapters. But what it does accomplish is it gives us clarity that God wants to use all things to bring glory to his name. Not in a narcissistic fashion like you and I might have if we want our name reflected. But God himself being the most beautiful right thing in all of the universe. Wants his character, his splendor, and his nature to be reflected because it is where we thrive. Even if that thriving looks like suffering. And so today we open the book of Job in chapter 3 to a once prosperous man that sits in the ruins of his life where he once sung songs of praise, we see Job singing lament. Where Job once rejoiced, we see cursing. Job is in utter ruins after losing all of his possession, all of his position, and all of his children. We have seen in Job 1 and 2 
the attack on Job's things and Job's person. But now we see all that devastation entering into Job's heart. And he wrestles. And it is in that position that three friends come to Job. Job sitting in an ash heap with what they say, a broken piece of pottery scraping away the festering wounds on his body is where he meets his friends. So let's read that together here in Job 2, verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, each came, they, each, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. You know, in the future weeks, we're not going to have a lot of positive things to say about Job's three friends. But in this context, in what we read today, there's a lot to admire. And that should ground us to the understanding that despite what happens in the future, these are good friends. They come with integrity and care and love to Job. No matter what they say in chapters 4 through 38, we know that these men love Job. To have people come in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of heartache, is not a thing to overlook. Upon hearing the situation, Job's friends make an appointment to come see Job. They want to care for him. They want to help lift him up in this tragedy. It is a friendship that is well past today's increasingly shallow connection where friendship seems to have been boiled down to liking and loving and commenting on pictures and posts where risk is minimized and vulnerability and weakness is edited. These are not that type of friend. These are good men who have made an appointment to see their friend, to show sympathy and comfort. They want to lift his spirit with their words and their presence. They want to lighten his suffering. But the word says that as they came upon him, they did not even recognize their friends, their friend. They didn't recognize who Job was. There was an overwhelmingness to the whole situation, and all they could do, as the Bible says, was to mourn, symbolized in their screams and their tears and the ripping of their clothes and the sprinkling of the dust. They are mourning with their unrecognizable friend. Certainly, this is true in tragedy. Tragedy has a way of creating distance between us. We see it here in Job's friends. They did not recognize him. Certainly, that's mostly to do with his appearance and his body being covered with sores, but there is a reality in which tragedy separates us on an emotional level. Maybe you have experienced this in your life, that when our friends and our families go through deep, tragic suffering, we see something so intense and deep in them that we do not recognize. There's something about suffering that doesn't jive with the person that we know them to be. Something deep and intense, especially if we're building relationships on a surface level understanding. And so if we've never experienced our friends in suffering, they become foreign and alien to us. And it causes us to step back, to hesitate, to fear. 
It causes us to see our friend as almost unrecognizable. We don't know what to do, and so we just we take a step back. And look, it works both ways. If we have walked through tragedy, through hard pain in our life, isn't it hard to be around people? Even our friends? Because whether we're aware of it or not, something inside of us has deeply changed. And we don't believe that people could ever recognize how deeply we've been affected. We don't believe that others could relate to this new version of ourselves. I think it's important that we see this and acknowledge it, that our enemy wants nothing more than to divide us. And he uses tragedy to bring that about. Certainly this is the case with Job's friends, but what we see in them, we should commend. They stayed, they pressed in, they came, they sat with them. Often, if you're like me, our intuition is to fix the problem. I'm going to come in here, I'm going to fix what it is. Obviously, Job's friends weren't going to fix anything. They weren't going to come in here and fix anything. Instead of words, they gifted their presence. Our text says that they came to comfort. In the Old Testament, we've come to know that comfort would mean that they were going to speak to his heart. But on seeing the situation, they realized that words would be insufficient for this situation. And so they sat. And look, isn't it most natural for us to want to fix? As a guy, I think... It is my most natural inclination to come in and fix a problem. And I will be honest with you enough to say that I have done more harm in that than I have been helpful. There are times that I have learned and I've hurt my wife by wanting to fix a problem than just to sit in the complexity and the emotion and just to be present. Job's friends should be commended for this. It should be something that is within our scope as well to do with our friends. We don't have to fix things. We can just be in the room with them. We can just make them a meal. We can clean their house. We can just sit on the couch and just have open ears. Job's friends sit for seven days and seven nights. That is a long time to be quiet. But this is the usual practice that we see in the Old Testament of people grieving somebody who is dead. So what it means is that Job's friends are either grieving the loss of Job's children or they're looking at Job and his devastation and saying, this guy's going to die. And so they're actually grieving Job in his impending death. Seven days of silence. But if you consider this, think about the amount of time that it would have taken in this time. I don't know when that time is, but it's not today. To think about how that news would have gotten back to his friends. A length of time for that news to get to them. A length of time for them to get with each other and make an appointment. And then for them to travel and to see their friend Job. Certainly they sit with him for seven days. But this is a huge chunk of time that Job is in an ash heap. Scraping his wounds. This is 30, 40, who knows how many days. Then his friends sit there seven days, seven nights. And it is Job that breaks the silence. Job goes off in this epic self-curse of himself, a lament that is really, really quite beautiful in his honesty. One of the things that I think that we should be careful about when we read this ancient book of Job is to kind of address it as an intellectual. There is times to be intellectual in this, 
But if we're not near Job's emotion, if we're not near Job's devastation, we'll miss some of the context of the truths that will be made known to us later in the chapter. So we link ourselves to this text trying to understand how Job is dealing with his grief. And to do that, I'm going to do something I normally don't do. I'm going to read Job 3 out of a paraphrased translation of the Bible. When we read scripture around here, normally we read it in an ESV uh, translation. There are different sort of translations in the Bible that start from word to word, to go to thought for thought, and then they go into paraphrase. We like to lean towards word for word translations But because we're not as concerned with theology as we are with getting near where Job is at, we're going to read a paraphrase. And I would just say, never use a paraphrase if it's not in conjunction with something that is more literal. But for where we are at today, to try to get a sense of where Job is, we'll read out of the message. And so just know that this is a sacred space of Job lamenting in his honesty that we're walking into, that we have permission by the author to walk into, Job is just exposing his heart. So let's read Job 3 together in all of its entirety, verses 1 through 26. This is what is written. Job 3. Then Job broke the silence. He spoke up and cursed his fate. Obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. In the night of my conception, the devil take it. Rip the date off the calendar. Delete it from the almanac. Oh, turn that night into pure nothingness. No sounds of pleasure from that night ever. May those who are good at cursing curse that day. Unleash the sea beast Leviathan on it. May its morning stars turn to black cinders, waiting for a daylight that never comes, never once seeing the first light of dawn. And why? Because it released me from my mother's womb into a life with so much trouble. Why didn't I die at birth? My breath... My first breath out of the womb, my last. Why were there arms to rock me or breasts for me to drink from? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain, in the company of kings and statements in the royal ruins, or with princes resplendent in their gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I still born and buried with all the babies who never saw light, where the wicked no longer trouble anyone, And the bone-weary people get a long-deserved rest. Prisoners sleeping undisturbed. Never again to wake up to the bark of the guards. The small and the great are equals in that place. And slaves are free from their masters. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't. Those who can't imagine anything better than death who count the day of their death and burial, the happiest day of their life. What is the point of life when it does not make sense? When God blocks all the roads to meaning, instead of bread, I groan for my supper, then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I have dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered, my peace destroyed. No rest for me ever. Death has invaded life. 
our friend Job is not in a good space. This chapter is divided into three different sections. We, first, we have this curse of the day that Job was born, and then there's a, a lament that he was born, and then there's a complaint that he has life. And the key to understanding what Job is despairing over is found in the last four verses of this scripture. Job says, the thing that I have feared the most has come true. What I have dreaded befalls me. Which means that Job, in his prosperous life, before all this tragedy, that in that life there was a fear that motivated him. A fear that somewhere along the way he identified as that is the worst of all possible events that could happen. And what is interesting is that fear really made him into the person that he is. Job went to great lengths never to walk in a reality where that may happen. The word says that Job was blameless, upright. He turned away from evil. The word says that Job even prayed for his kids after feasting that there might have been a chance that his kids had sinned do you see what job's greatest fear was it isn't losing his kids and it it wasn't losing his house or his power or his possession those are things that when i read this i project those things that job must be feeling that job's despair is coming from the fact that he believes he is living a life without the favor of god Not once did Job curse God after the tragedy befell on him. Instead, he says, do we not receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job's greatest fear is to live a life without God. Notice that in this chapter, Job never once mentions his children, never once mentions his positions or his possessions. Instead, Job says, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Job is wrestling with his own innocence in light of the fact that that God has treated him as a sinner, that he is being punished, and he is left bewildered and confused by the hiddenness of his suffering. But it is in the vacuum of his despair that we hear how much Job values God. In fact, Job curses the day that he was born. He wishes his presence never existed, that he would live a life, that he would not live a life that is devoid of God's favor, that God would rather have never created the day itself. In Genesis, we see in the the account of creation that, that God sees a blameless, a void, a, 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 a without form. And God's first words are, let there be light. What Job is contending is that God would take the day that he was born and that he would roll it back into the chaos pre-creation. Job is saying, I want darkness to come upon that day. And then I want darkness to envelop that darkness. And then I want somebody who's good at cursing to call up the sea beast Leviathan to swallow the darkness that covers the darkness of the day that I was born. He curses his birth and he laments that it happened. He laments that his mother even rocked him or fed him. And he wishes that he would rather have been stillborn because in his opinion, 
they would at least be at rest. Now, it's important to note here that, that Job is not contemplating taking his own life. He just wishes that life had never began in the first place. And if we're honest, there are many of us in this room who have conceived similar thoughts. That there have been days that we would have believed it'd be better that we not exist. And Job has such a linear mindset here. He believes to a fault, to his fault, that good is rewarded and bad is punished. And he has no room for complexity in his mind or in his world. It's either good or bad. There is no layers in it, nor is grace a concept that he could even comprehend. And because of it, he has tunnel vision. He has tunnel vision over a life that did not work the way that he expected it to work. It is if Job is looking through a microscope at Picasso's most beautiful painting, all he can see is one tiny dot. But in it, he believes it's the whole picture. And I don't think Job is alone in his predicament. There are scores of people, and maybe people in this room, who have come to believe that they can know the mind of God in despair. They, like Job, have a linear mindset that says God rewards good behavior and bad is punished. Since my life is in ashes, God is punishing me and he doesn't like me. Job's life is a case study in complexity, blameless yet destroyed, obedient yet treated as a slacker. It's easy to let a moment of your life define the whole. And there are many of us who are looking through a microscope, unable to step back with perspective and see the beauty of life that God has made. Job is stuck, but he will not be stuck forever. One of the most honest things that we can take away from this reading in Job is Job's sheer honesty in front of God. It is not by accident this is in the scriptures. We can be assured that it is acceptable to our God to be honest with our struggles. Maybe right now all you can do is see through a microscope. And maybe there is a day for all of us where that will be true, that my life will be made, filtered through one moment. But in it, Job compels us to be honest. To say, God, I can't see through this right now. My whole life is overwhelmed by this moment. I think that there is pressure that we put on ourselves, that we believe culture puts on us, that we've got to get over things. Nobody wants to be seen as a mess. I can't look this way. I've got to, be, I've got to move past this. I should be over this by now. But our scripture says that it's okay not to be okay. And to pretend would be unauthentic to the truth of Christ. But for some reason in this religion of Christianity, there's an even greater pressure to appear well, to seem happy, to look like we have everything together. Because in it, if we are not, it might communicate to others that I don't believe, trust, love God enough. It's a version of Christianity that I call happy, clappy Christianity. Where everything is good and happy and things are great. The people in the church and the leaders of the church are all, I'm good, God's blessing me, he's doing amazing things in my life, inferring that you need to get with the program. 
but it's not real. It's not true, and it's anti-gospel. God never promised you a life that you could not handle. He promised you that the God in you could handle all of life. All of my life is more than I can handle. That is why I need Jesus. It's more than I can handle. Jesus, the suffering servant who counted meekness and humility as genuine qualities of those who would live in the kingdom of God, that said suffering is not a possibility, but a reality of those who follow after me. And so friends, today on this side of the cross, we have even greater reasons to hope than Job has. Job certainly suffered, and he is alone in his suffering, but his life would parallel the life of our Savior Jesus, who had his own moments of lonely suffering. You think to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, in the final hours of his life, goes to pray to his Father. And what does he ask his disciples? You stay here and stay awake and watch guard and pray with me. And he goes and prays and he comes back and he finds them asleep. And he rebukes them. Can't you just stay up for one hour and keep watch and pray? And he goes and prays again. And he comes back, and again he finds them sleeping. And again he rebukes them, and again he goes away to pray. And again he comes back the third time to find his disciples sleeping. Jesus is in the midst of agony. At the task before him, and he finds himself alone. With Jesus, we don't find a God that has distanced our struggles and our despairs, but one who walked in them and knows them. We find a God that weeps with his friends as we see in Lazarus with Mary and Martha. It would be a lonely death on the cross as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is that death that ultimately leads to our secure hope and grace that carries us forward today. But Job has no idea. If you have read the book of Job, you know that at the end of this, Job is restored. That all of it is given back to him. Job has no idea in this moment that goodness will ever come. But today, you and I, believers, we have hope, a sure hope, that we can struggle in our hope because our God is a promise keeper. And the promise of Christ is that those of faith, those who believe that there will be redemption in all things, that there will be restoration, that all that is broken will be made whole. The Apostle Paul writes in his letters that today I see in part, but then one day face to face I will know in full what Paul is saying is that there will be a day in eternity with God that all of this will make sense in a way that I will be overwhelmingly con overwhelming convinced that if somebody would ask me in that heavenly realm, would you do it again all of life? I would say yes in a moment. He will redeem and make everything clear. We have hope in Jesus. Hope implies struggle to wrestle, but ultimately something greater will prevail. Jesus will prevail, and his grace secures us by him, to us by, his, by our faith. It's, it's not good or bad. It's not obedient or slacker. It's humble sinner 
in various, various stages of completion, seeing goodness not in their ability to obey God's law, but in our ability to love Jesus more than ourselves. Job begs us to ponder his lament, his heart that says, you can take away all that I have. It is you that I want, God. And if I can't have you, then I don't want life. Job's lament says that God is better than life. And if I had nothing but I had you, then I would have everything. And the question that speaks to us today is could we say that? Could we say, Jesus, if all that I had was you, that would be sufficient? And here's the thing. If we can't, then let's be honest. We're not happy, clappy Christianity. We are faithful brothers and sisters that grieve together. Let's be honest. There is a phrase that we'll sing here that what is true in the light is true in the dark. Jesus doesn't change based upon how we feel. He doesn't change based upon our situation. He is constantly true as a God that has walked through tragedy and hardship to be near his people. You are not alone like Job. God is with us in the midst of our journey, in the midst of our pain. So today we just wanted to open a space just for you to be honest. I'm not asking that you go into active grief. I'm just asking that would be honest, that, that maybe there are microscope moments in our life that we can't get past, that we can't say, God, if you took that, I would still find you sufficient. And so what we want to do is just open a time just to, to sit and reflect, to be honest with God. And look, if, if you have never experienced the struggle in life, then, then pray that God would increase your affection, that when they do come, that you would make his glory known in it. And that you would pray that your heart would be more empathetic to those who are actively dealing with sadness and grief in their life. Would you pray with me?